So let me quickly orientate you where we are in the Nehemiah series, not in terms of what we're doing content-wise, but just to tell you we only have three or four weeks left, and I hear a deep sigh of sadness from the congregation. Thank you, Lord. Um, But what we're going to do is, as you saw, we're going to start the DNA series on the 18th, so we're going to do two more out of Nehemiah. I'll preach this morning. We're going to have one more next week, and then we're going to take a break for five weeks. We're going to look at the DNA, which is really, really a critical series. Then we'll come back during the school holidays for another week or two of Nehemiah, and then we'll carry on with our DNA series. But what we're going to do in the next three or four Nehemiahs is we're going to zoom out a little bit, and we're not going to spend as much time in one text. We're going to kind of look more um, at, the, at, the wider, at the wider lens view, if that makes sense. And we're going to ask some questions. All right, so this morning, I'm going to try and keep you with me as I ask this question. What is theology? And why should you care? What is theology and why should you care? So if you know Greek or if you happen to have access to Google, you can quite quickly find out that the Greek for theology, theo is the word God. And logi is the same or similar derivative to the word logos, the word, you know, logos, but it means the study of. So theology in Greek literally means God, the study of. So it's the study of God, who He is. That's simple, right? But I know that the minute that we hear the word study, we think books, we think desk, we think pressure, we think exams, we think all of these things, but actually, when it comes to theology, as many, many preachers, theologians, even philosophers, are at pains to point out, we are all theologians. All of us, every single day, are forming ideas, we are studying who God is. Does that make sense? So every single one of you in the room, you might be bad theologians, You might be lazy theologians, but you are a theologian. You're forming ideas every day of who God is. And that profoundly, rightly or wrongly, the ideas that you form around God, rightly or wrongly, profoundly influence how you respond to God, right? If you see God as good, and you see Him as kind, and you see Him as fatherly, you respond to Him out of that theology, what you know of God. But if you think God is... is enduringly mean, he's unpredictably cruel, he's vindictive. If you think of God in those terms, you can see very easily how it flows into the way that you are toward him. It profoundly impacts your life. In fact, if you think about it, even atheists are theologians. They have studied and formed a view of God that he is not there. And so even in their view of God, they are theologians. This is why, this, this fact that all of us are theologians is why I believe A.W. Tozer, who's one of my favorites, you know this, and I, you know this quote, and I hope I keep quoting it until the day I die because it's so profound. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It will profoundly change everything. Now, I'm going to change tact. So that's theology. Theo, God. Logi, the study of. The study of God. What you think of God. I want you to keep that thought in mind, and then for a moment I'm going to make a gigantic leap across to meditation. 
All right? I want you to, to think about modern meditation. Eastern meditation. We could even call it Western meditation now because yoga and these other things are so prevalent within even the church and, and all these other things. So what is the common factor? I'm sure there's more than one, but one of the enduringly common factors of meditation is to empty your mind. You have to empty your mind. And when you're able to do that, then time speeds up or time stands over. You have this kind of out-of-body experience. And I, I find it deeply ironic that one of the accusations that's frequently leveled against the church or against Christians is that we somehow check our brains out at the door. And yet on the packet of meditation, of the world, worldwide meditation, on the packet is effectively saying, check your brain out at the door. Empty your mind. Now I want to tell you that Christian meditation is wholly other. It's wholly different. It's the other complete side of the spectrum. What is Christian meditation? It's to fill your mind with God. Do you see the difference? Because if we don't want you to think too deeply about things, then you must empty your mind. God is not afraid to be thought of. He wants us to fill our minds with Him. It's a strange concept for many of us because we haven't been well discipled in what personal devotion looks like. But meditation is encouraged all through Scripture. It's endorsed. If you think about it in, in Psalm, there's this, there's this picture of this man who's held up as this kind of this picture, this tree by the river whose roots go down, who's always bearing fruit, who never, he's never has a season of, of failure, of, of fruitlessness. And this is what it says about him in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Don't let... Eastern religions capture what the Bible has been teaching for thousands of years. We must meditate upon God's Word. Now, what does that have to do with theology? Well, theology, knowing God. Meditation, thinking on God. Filling our minds with God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so one of my encouragements this morning is that we... I want to encourage you to fill your mind with God. He's not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid that you're going to find out one of his attributes, like justice or judgment. He self-discloses these things in the Bible. He says, this is who I am. I'm a God who's angry, but I'm also a God who's enduringly merciful. And we need to think and ponder about both of those things. God, how are you angry? How are you judgmental? How do you do these things, God? And yet you're still God. He's not hiding anything. And all of that that I've said this morning is to take us to the big idea that I want you to take home with you today. This, if you take, this is what I want you to take home from the sermon. Nehemiah shows us that rightly knowing God Theology, meditation, scripture reading, rightly knowing God results in faith-fueled prayer and always results in worship. That's your take-home today, all right? That's what I want you to take home with you. So let's read it together. Rightly, have you got it? You have. Read it with me, come on. Rightly knowing God results in faith-fueled prayer and always results in worship. Now, let me flip this immediately 
on its head and say that conversely, if you do not know God, if you have wacko ideas of who God is, what does that lead to? Well, that results in weak, anemic, zero or irregular prayer. Right? Think about it. If you believe in a God who is mighty and powerful and sovereign and able to reach into your very life and change things, how do you pray? You pray to such a God. You pray with faith and you say, God, I know you can change the situation. I know you can change my marriage. I know you can change my friend. I know you can change my finances. And we pray with faith. But if we view God as some kind of demigod who's just one of multiple gods, or we view him as this kind of little bolt-on that we just add on to our very important lives and we just bolt God onto the side, then we pray in the same kind of way. We pray to a God who is weak and toothless and powerless. As if he was a little bolt on to our very important lives. And when we do that, it always ends in self-worship. It always ends in self-absorbed living, in selfishness. Alright, so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at three things out of Nehemiah. It's extremely, extremely simple. We're going to look at God. Who does Nehemiah think God is? Who does Nehemiah say God is? Then we're going to look at prayer. How does Nehemiah pray? And we've spoken about that through this series. It's one of the beautiful, enduring pictures out of the book of Nehemiah is how regularly this man and the people that he leads pray. They pray for everything. And we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about how it leads them to worship. And then we are going to worship. That's why we only did one, one 15 songs up front which was awesome we're going to get we're going to stand up and we're going to just finish our time of singing in worship together so as you read through the book of nehemiah it becomes very clear this is a great bible study to look at what does he think about god what does he experience of god what does he declare about god and i'm going to give you three and then i'm going to give you a whole bunch on the screen that you can just write down i'll give you two minutes bless you i'll give you two minutes to write down and you can go home and study that but here we go number one nehemiah believes that god is universally sovereign that there's no place in the whole of the universe over god has not, over which god has not declared mine as one of the great theologians has said and it's not aw tozer Although he could have. (laughs) Nehemiah 2, verse 8, the second part says this. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is right in the beginning. When he's going to the king and saying, I need this, I need this, I want you to even give me timber from your forests. Nehemiah doesn't put it down that the king says, yes, go for it to random chance. He doesn't put it down to his high work ethic which has gained him a reputation which I'm sure he had in the king's palace, he doesn't put it down to any of those things. When he has the favor of the king of Persia, what does he say? The good hand of my God was upon me. God is the one who's controlling the universe. God is the one who's in charge. We see it again in chapter 2 and verse 20. And for the sake of time, unless you are super quick, you can go with me. But you can also follow behind me. He says, then I replied to them. He's talking to some of the enemies and the guys who are coming against them. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Guys, do we believe this? 
Do we believe that God is sovereign? Some of you are facing situations today and you need to hear. You need to hear to the depth of your heart that God is sovereign over every speck of dust on the planet. He's got you. Nehemiah believes that God is in heaven and he alone is God. I love this in chapter 9 verse 6. You are the Lord. You alone. You made heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. I love that word. You preserve all of them. It's like God, the fussy detail of God caring for them, not just create good luck, off you go, eat each other. No, I'm preserving you. I'm, I'm sustaining. And the host of heaven worships you. Isn't it good to read these things? Do we believe that in his sovereignty, Nehemiah certainly does, he clears the way for those who honor him and he frustrates the ways of those who oppose him? Maybe not in an instant, maybe not in your week, but overall God clears the way for those who honor him and he frustrates the ways of those who oppose him. In chapter 4 verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. I love that section in the New Testament where they're speaking about the early believers, the disciples, and one of the Pharisees stands up and so wisely says, if this is of God, we will find ourselves working against God. But if it is not of God, it'll just fade away like the rest. There's wisdom. God frustrates the plans. Guys, we, we need to meditate on these aspects of God. This is what gets us through the trials. It's not Oprah Winfrey. It's not even your wonderful circle of friends, and I'm sure they're great. It's not even One Hope Church community. It's our understanding of who God is. The second thing that Nehemiah shows us so beautifully, in fact, not just Nehemiah, we've been, we've been tracing this all from the very first week when we started Ezra all those years ago. We've been tracing this theme. God is totally reliable. He's totally reliable. God keeps His promises I want to tell you this morning, God is nothing like your father who abandoned you. He's nothing like that. He's, he's nothing like the wife who cheated on you and left. He's nothing like your unreliable boss who moved you down from Joburg with all the promises in the world and you got to Stellenbosch and he pulled the carpet out from under your feet. God is entirely reliable. Chapter 1 verse 5, Nehemiah says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ears, your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Ollie mentioned this last week. Um, Chanda is much loved in our midst. Those of you who've only been here for the last year and a half or so, you won't know Chanda. But if you were here before that, you would know. We call him Chanda the Thunder. And that's from a Zim mission trip when he was preaching with no need of a microphone, although he had one and our ears were bleeding. But he didn't, 
He didn't need one. He could preach in Stellenbosch and you'd hear him in Bulawayo. But thunder the chanda, when you pray with him, he'd start off almost every prayer. And he'd say, covenant keeping and covenant making God. And it was beautiful. And I just used to revel in that line. And this is straight out of the text. God is a reliable God. In Israel, in the first week, you can go back and listen to this if you missed it. You can go back to Israel chapter 1. Technology was even around then. The first week was, is God forever faithful? And we went right back into Jeremiah. Do you remember Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, 33? Right in the midst of God's judgment. Right in the midst of God saying, I'm taking you out. I'm exiling you. There's these beautiful chapters of hope sandwiched in the middle where God begins to say, I'm taking you out, but there's hope. I'm going to bring you back. This is what it's going to look like. This is the delight that's going to happen to you and your families. You're going to walk with tears streaming down your face with joy as you enter Jerusalem again. And we see right there, God is saying, I am forever faithful. And week two, we ask the question, is God even faithful when I sin? What about when I've messed up? What about when it's my fault? Is God still faithful? And you can go back and listen to some of those. The third attribute that comes through so beautifully in the book of Nehemiah is that God is utterly holy. He's utterly holy. Now, I need you to switch on with me here because I know we can hear phrases like God is utterly holy. And we're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. Let me think about what's going to happen later. Listen to this. To, to move forward... In any aspect of Christian life, I've chosen words carefully here, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the circumstance, we must acknowledge that our greatest need is not relief from our present situation, but eternal forgiveness. Whatever you are facing today, whatever circumstance you are facing, you need to know that your greatest relief is not relief from that circumstance, no matter how terrible it may be. And I don't mean to be callous in any way to tell you that. I'm trying to be as loving as I can because we need to realize that eternal forgiveness is the most powerful and important thing that can ever happen in anybody's life ever. Because God is utterly Holy. See, this is why in our serve Stellenbosch, when we, when we began to pull a team together some years ago, and we began to talk about what are the pillars, what are the things that we're going to hold tightly to, and we're not going to negotiate on around serve Stellenbosch. That's why we cannot get behind an organization where we cannot have easy access to share the gospel of Jesus with people who are in need. Because if we simply put shoes on feet and we simply put food in mouths and we simply help to educate people and those things are wonderful and God knows we need them. But if that's all we do and we don't have opportunity to share the gospel and that God is holy and he's forgiven your sins and he sent Jesus, then we are wasting our time. And that's why Jesus could say so profoundly, this is a scripture to meditate on, that's why he could say, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And some time back we sat in a meeting with Vanna and Philip, the guys who lead Calling, and man, they're doing an incredible job. Calling Academy, we went to some of the... Um, 
We went to a thing this week on Thursday night. A whole bunch of us here went and it was like a fundraising and just a, a feedback session of what's going on. They're taking three of their guys to Oxford um, University this next week on like an exchange program. These kids are, are having the most incredible opportunities opened up to them. But in that meeting, sitting with Vanna and we're talking through how things are going and where the focus is and what the priority is, I just felt in prayer before that meeting, the Lord pressing this verse into my heart. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? What is the whole world? The whole world. Everything. Not a very spiritual man, but I, I read Jim Carrey said, and I'm going to paraphrase so I didn't write it down, but he said something like this. I wish everyone could become rich and famous so that they would know there was nothing so great about it. What does it profit a man to gain the entire world? The beautiful calling academy education. If we do not use that opportunity to also press into their hearts the seed of the gospel, the seeds of fatherhood. So encouraged on Thursday night just to hear again and again and again speaking about fathering and teaching these young men how to father. One of the fathers got up and said, my sons said to me, dad, what we're learning is that we're going to be a better father than you. It was delightful. This is what the father shared with us on, on Thursday evening. Two of the four, the two of the four young men that stood up and they were asked, what is the highlight of the two years that they've been part of calling? You know what they shared? The connect groups, the discipleship groups, like groups that Bates and others are busy running in that school. Isn't that incredible? Of all the things, all the technology, they're getting iPads given to them and they're learning coding and they've got guys coming in and teaching them how to fly drones and all this really creative, thoughtful, awesome stuff. But what's the highlight of the last two years? I'm learning about Jesus in connect groups. What does it profit a man? You see, Nehemiah understands, and I've got a little bit sidetracked there, forgive me, I get excited. But Nehemiah understands that God is utterly holy and that no situation that we are currently going through is as vital as the forgiveness of our sins. So Nehemiah confesses again and again. He confesses his own sin. Then he owns the sin of his family. You know this because we've spoken about this through the series. He then confesses the sins of the entire nation. Why? Because he has realized to his core being that God is. Come on, you with me now? God is utterly holy. Guys, when we begin to get these attributes of God, when our theology and our meditation and the Word of God so floods us and we begin to be gripped by these things, can you see how it changes us? Can you see what happens when suddenly you're at a braai and you're thinking about, on, on Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, you're thinking about how God is universally sovereign and then at the braai the topic comes up of South Africa and the current state of affairs in South Africa? There's a whole different response from you. There's a hope-filled, gospel-filled, joy-filled response instead of a condemnation and a judgment. And if we were in power, we would be so much better. It's a completely different ballgame because all of a sudden we're saying, God, you are sovereign. You put our president in place, so we're going to pray for him instead of moaning about him endlessly. It changes everything. Or you think about your boss. When you think about the fact that God is universally sovereign, isn't that good for some of us when we have an unreasonable, ungodly boss making us work ridiculously long hours? Isn't it good to remember that God is universally sovereign? You know, guys, sometimes we are injured. Sometimes there's major health 
crises that go on in our lives. We, we need this thing to sink deep into our hearts that there's a greater miracle than your healing. There's a greater miracle than your deliverance from month's end blues. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to give you two minutes, and I'm going to, hopefully we got this right. Dev, if you can throw up the, yes, of course you got it right, you Devon, after all. There's another, there's another section, just get your pen, get your phone, whatever, and take a picture, or write those things down, and those are more attributes, there's, there's more than that, but I just have put four more on the board that you can go and study out of the book of Nehemiah in your own personal time. All right, if you don't have a, a picture, find a friend who looks like they took one, and I'm sure they'll. What's happened to you? Can we carry on? Are you with? No, not yet. Right, right, right. Can I carry on now? Let's go for it. Let's speak about prayer. I only want to be another nine minutes or so. As I've already said up front, the way that Nehemiah views God completely changes the way that Nehemiah prays to God. And that is so completely true for each of us. And you can also reverse engineer this and think about your own prayer life and why you may be struggling. Yes, I'm sure it might be some issues around discipline. Yes, I'm sure it might be struggling with your alarm clock in the morning. But I do wonder if a large part of our prayerlessness in the current church, not just One Hope, I'm talking Global church, if a lot of our prayerlessness is around an anemic view of who God is. If we don't truly believe that God can change situations, then why would we take time out of our very busy schedule to pray? I must be honest, in my own personal devotion, this is the hardest part of the grind for me. This is the, this is the, this is the hard work part, is prayer. Because I feel so unproductive. For someone who loves to have tick boxes in my mind and I tick off things all day long and the greatest sense of achievement I get when I put my head on the pillow is to have hundreds of maybe ten like green ticks in my tick box. Like I got to that today. Prayer is an effort. It's a struggle. And I have to constantly say, God, your work, your church, your fruitfulness, not my effort is what's going to stand at the end of the day. But Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, begins with prayer. Right there in chapter 1, the whole big portion of chapter 1 is prayer. Then you go and look at the end of Nehemiah. So he starts with prayer in Persia, and chapter 13 ends with Nehemiah praying in Jerusalem. I want to just throw up a very simple way that, that Nehemiah shows us, but it's also a way that we learn how to pray. Often I find guys don't have any kind of understanding of a, of a, of a method or a way or an, an easy framework. And I call it a framework, an easy framework to pray. So this is the one I use with my children. It's very straightforward. Some of you would know it. Some of you hopefully have been using it for many years. It's called ACTS. 
It's very straightforward. The A stands for adoration. The C stands for confession. The T stands for thanksgiving. And the S stands for esteros. There we go. It's my daughter over there. Supplication. That's the only big word you need to teach your kid. The rest of them, they know. Within two, two or three nights, they will know what supplication means. It means to ask. This is the part where we say, Father, we need a swimming pool. Or we need... And that is literally, they prayed in a swimming pool into our house. And it's a ridiculous faith-fueled story that I can tell you. And when they started praying it, my first instinct was to say, no, 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 this is so selfish. Then I thought, why not let the Father, let them pray? And they prayed for six months, and our neighbor pulled out his pool, and we got his pool, and we put it in, and it's been amazing. Right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. This is a fantastic, fantastic way to pray. If you've got little children, the way that we do it at home is that each night when we're praying, we don't always use this, but often we turn to this and we just say to each child, what does adoration mean? What does thanksgiving mean? What does confession mean? And then they each take one and they will pray. And it's beautiful because it gives a framework. So they're not praying through all of them in a half an hour. It's just one of them prays prayers of adoration. And sometimes it sounds more like thanks and confession great and then at the end supplication is actually the easiest one god what we want but so often we just go there so we can see ezra and nehemiah pray in these beautiful ways in in chapter 8 verse 6 it says ezra blessed the lord the great god and all the people answered amen amen lifting up their hands we dug priests so beautifully and they bowed their heads and worshiped the lord with their faces to the ground adoration amen amen we're worshiping you god you can look at 9, chapter 9 verse 3 to 5 then we see all through the book as i already mentioned there's confession the sea, confession, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, he says in 1 verse 6, to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to come before God with your children and to be open in prayer around where we're dropping the ball. Father, today, they know already. They know. They were there at the dinner table when you lost your egg. Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for the example I set to my children of, of a father. And we can pray these prayers. Thanksgiving. You can look at Nehemiah 12, verse 24. And the chiefs of the Levites and a whole bunch of names with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and give thanks according to the commandments of David, the man of God. Watch by watch. Watch by watch means Time frame by time frame. So they're constantly having people like they watch the wall. They watch this. They were giving praise to God. And then supplication again. You can find all over the book. But 1 verse 11 is an easy one. The prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servants today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And he's bringing specific requests. Guys, there's so many... That's the one way you could frame and look at a Bible study around the book of Nehemiah. The other way is to look at kind of large pots, if you would, of, of emotion where these different prayers fit. And, and there's, there's incredible prayers of anguish in the book of Nehemiah. It's prayers of anguish. How many of us, when we're coming before God at times and we're just like, Lord, this thing doesn't make sense. Or God, this thing hurts. It's okay, we can do that. We can be completely honest. Having a high view of the sovereignty of God doesn't mean that we don't have moments in personal anguish. 
It just means that in those moments, there's a hope that's bubbling that we say, God, I know that you are still sovereign. Or even, can I give you the freedom that there's times in our lives when we don't even feel that. We just feel the anguish. And we turn to God and we say, remind me again. Because I don't feel it. Remind me again that you are good. There's another bucket is prayers of joy. There's amazing prayers of joy in the book of Nehemiah. There's prayers for protection. Keep us safe. Protect us, God. There's prayers of dependence. These are some of my favorite ones. I depend on you. God, if you don't come through, we're stuffed. Prayers of dependence are beautiful prayers. Humbling prayers. And then there's many prayers of commitment. Recommitment. God, I bring my life before you again, etc. etc. The point I'm trying to make in this whole section is that Nehemiah prayed a lot. And he led his people to pray a lot. Nehemiah worked hard. There's a section in the book, we haven't actually covered it, we're not going to, where it says he didn't even go home and change his clothes. So busy was he on the walk, work on the wall. He worked hard. So this is not a, a call to, to slacking. And then in the last minute, you know, asking God to help you with supernatural knowledge for your exam. I hope God doesn't help you in that moment. I say that fatherly. He worked hard, but he prayed hard. Sometimes he worked and then he prayed. Sometimes he prayed and then he worked. We see these things outworking. But what we see so clearly and beautifully is that Nehemiah demonstrates a reliance on God. Complete reliance. Guys, we've, we've spoken about these things. I'm not going to speak about prayer anymore. And I do want to encourage you, pray and fast this week, Tuesday. It's such an easy ask. Such an easy ask. One day to give up your food. One day. Give up your food. Do you know why? Because it reminds you of your dependence on God. That we don't live by our breakfast cereal and our lunch and our dinner. That actually, Father, there's more in you that we want. And if, if you are not on our normal sign-up list, please won't you sign up. Charmaine, Sarah, Robs, Bates, myself, any of us staff guys or anyone who looks like they know what they're doing. Shaul at the back. Even Devs is going to help you. Anybody, get on the sign-up list. On Monday, we'll send out thoughts around what we're going to be praying and fasting for so you're not just starving you can actually pray with us it's not a starvation diet do you remember what our take home for the day is rightly knowing god results in faith fueled prayer and can only rightly end in worship an incorrect view of god or not rightly knowing god results in weak anemic irregular or zero prayer and ends in self-worship. Let's finish together in this last one. We've looked at God. We've looked at prayer. Let's finish with worship. I've been uh, looking at an old hymn. I find hymns extremely helpful for this aspect of meditating on God. It's just such a, a fresh way to hear authors' reflections on their meditations of God. I've been listening to one, um, or I haven't, I haven't actually listened to it because I haven't found it, but I've been reading it, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues. For a thousand tongues to sing of my Redeemer. Isn't that beautiful? I wish I had a thousand tongues so that I could sing about this King. 
That's how amazing it is. Nehemiah chapter 12 is where we'll finish off. This is the, the kind of the climax of the book where they are dedicating the wall. Everything they've been trying to do has been the temple and then the community all coming together. And now finally, Jerusalem is semi-complete. They've built the wall. And this is what it says in verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, and the sons of the singers gathered together, etc., etc. And so what happens is they actually get all the people, all the people, all the exiles, everyone who's come back, and they form these two ginormous choirs. I wish I could, I wish I could see this. Hollywood should help by making something for us. But two ginormous choirs, and the one choir with Ezra goes all the way around the city. Do you remember all the different gates we looked at that one Sunday, all the gates and all the walls? They go around this way, worshiping and praising God at the top of their voices. And the other choir go around this way, worshiping and praising God. And they meet at the top point, and they worship and praise God some more. And we read that in verse 43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What a beautiful text. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Guys, this is the only right and fitting response. You will find, I guarantee it, as you learn to meditate upon God and who He is, the natural outflow. You're not going to have to try hard. You're not going to have to sit and grit your teeth and... Mm, the natural outflow will be worship. You'll find yourself singing in the car. You'll find yourself singing to Taylor Swift or some of these other heathens and you'll be worshiping God. You'll be worshiping God. Not even the corruptible, not even the, the, the corrupt is corruptible. Even you could, anywhere, you're just worshiping God. You listen to Beethoven and suddenly it's like for the first time you're hearing the symphony. It's like, it's beautiful because your heart is worshiping God. I'm thoroughly convinced that we should be able to have our worship leaders stand up and sing Bar Bar Black Sheep and our hearts should be able to respond out of revelation to God. Of course that wouldn't be helpful. I know that. I'm just saying the heart attitude. I think we put undue pressure on our worship leaders to, to choose the perfect songs and to create the perfect mood and on our musicians to not hit the wrong note because oh, they might lose the Holy Spirit's presence. Come on! Our hearts responding to God and not just in two hours in a singing moment. That's just a tiny part of worship, right? When you wake up at Monday, on Monday morning at half past five and you begin to read your Bible, you're worshiping just as much as on a Sunday morning. In fact, when you walk through the doors of your work and you say, Father, help me. This is a hard environment. I want to go in here and I want to love you. That's worship. When you go home and you make dinner and you're cooking for your kids, you get the point. Worship, worship, worship. Worship. It's the only fitting response to understanding who this God is. We begin to see that the first response that comes out is faith-fueled prayer. Yes, it still takes discipline. Yes, it's hard work. That's why, for goodness sake, it's incredible to come together and pray. How can I encourage more of you to come and pray with us on a Sunday morning? It is so encouraging. It is so deeply encouraging to stand and feel like I don't have faith and I'm struggling with something that morning and to hear others who do have faith pray. It's incredible. 
And these guys worship God and they look at what God has done. Look at how far He has brought us. When we came here, these walls were broken down. This place was a wreck. In 52 days, God has rebuilt this wall. Look at the enemies that came against us. God took them out. Look at the law we've been reading. We're standing and reading this law and God's given us people, Ezra and others, to expound it and expand to us. Look at how forgiving and merciful God is upon Israel. They must have been thinking. Look at how, remember in chapter 1 when Nehemiah, he hears a report and he breaks down and begins to cry. When we spoke about holy discontent, he hears that there's shame in Jerusalem. Look at how God has taken their shame and made it beautiful. Made it a celebration. Made them again a city to be admired. Think on the faithfulness of God. Returning us from exile. Giving us our home. Giving us our identity. Guys, this is, this is a great concern. And I know I've just said that singing is not worship. But singing is a good litmus test some of our hearts. And I want, to, I want to encourage us, guys. Some of us look like we'd rather be anywhere else than singing on a Sunday morning. Thoroughly bored. Thoroughly disengaged. Thoroughly critical. Not that song again. How many times can you repeat a chorus, for goodness sake? And all these other things. Why don't we have drums? Why do we have drums? Why? We're missing the point. Rightly knowing God results in faith-fueled prayer and can only rightly end in worship. So let's worship. Band, why don't you come? You guys are awesome week on, week out, serving us. Video guys, amazing. Shaul and Beth, Dev and your team on the projection. Luke making coffee. These guys, week in and week out, serving this community in worship. And we get to... Respond to the Lord, not to them. We get to respond to the Lord in singing this morning. So, Father, we, I want to thank you. I want to pray that not one uh, dot of a judgment or condemnation would fall upon your people this morning as I preach. And even as I end, just in a challenge of, of, of a litmus test of our own hearts, just asking what it is we see of you and how we can stand and the, and the disconnect between how we can stand in worship and not lift our voices and not, not I'm not even... God, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm not even contending for raised hands and outward show, but just a genuine heart connection that we say, God, we are yours. We are yours. And you have given yourself to us. Lord, as we sing praises, would you encourage hearts this morning? Would you remind us of the attributes of our God, how great and powerful you are? And would our prayers from this place be fueled with faith? In the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus. Let's stand to our feet and sing together. Thanks, team.